Please open in your New Testament to Paul's first letter to the young pastor named Timothy. Paul wrote two letters. The second letter was just before Paul was executed. He was martyred. Some years earlier, he wrote 1 Timothy. And as I said earlier, it is an instruction to this young pastor as to how to build his church. Now notice, I did not say how to grow his church. That's not the emphasis. It's how to build the church with the people that God has given to him. It was a church in the city of Ephesus, a very pagan city. You can imagine how hard it would be for Christians to live as Christians in a very pagan place. And if you can't imagine, well, just sit back, and soon enough you will, as our world becomes more and more pagan, more than secular, even now profane. Our world is changing, our nation is changing, and the question is then, how are we as Christians then to live? Well, 1 Timothy gives us instructions. Having said that, in speaking about reading more, um, here is one title that is in a library. It comes from the Lamplighter Collection, Idols of the Heart, a wonderful novel that you may very well enjoy reading. It's an old book from the 1800s and um, made popular once again through Lamplighter Ministries. Lamplighter was here with us about a year ago at Christmas time, and they did a wonderful presentation using uh, drama to convey truths of the scriptures. You'll enjoy this book. Idols of the Heart. Plays right in with what we're reading here this morning. Let's take a look at the text. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. You'll recall at verse, verse 2, he says, Teach and urge these things. And then what we saw last week was, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness coupled together with contentment will do you much good. Now, uh, when we read it in the scriptures, we want to believe it, but in terms of daily practice, well, some people do question it, even when they don't intend to. Uh, they don't see the value of contentment. They may see the value of godliness. But here the scriptures say when you put the two together, godliness and contentment, uh, there will be great gain for you. And we talked about what contentment means, what it means to be satisfied with what God has given to us. And uh, if you're wondering what contentment is with a biblical definition, well, I would say go online and listen to that message from last week. But here's our text this morning, beginning of verse 7. It's a continuation of the ideas of verse 6, but it says even more, from 7 to 10. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with th these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I do believe that our nation is intoxicated with money. When I say our nation, I'm referring to the people in the nation. I'm including the church as well. The Christians are just intoxicated with money. Uh, consumer credit card debt has now reached, as of July, this past July, $1 trillion in credit card debt. That's a lot of money. $1 trillion. 
Consumer debt in general is now up to 17 trillion. So is that a love for money or a love for things? It sounds like there's not enough money, but there's certainly a great passion for things, and so we borrow. Our love for things produces a discontented people, which produces a love for money, which produces a greedy people, which then produces a heavily indebted people, which then produces a faithless people, which produces a senselessly hurting people. It's a chain reaction. Uh, Pastor, author Jonathan Lehman notes that the word greed is whitewashed nowadays. He says that it is camouflaged. Instead of saying the word greed, we use words like lifestyle or ambition or the American dream. But really, it's greed. Often, often, not always, but often, the love of money we see here is a sin. Notice I said the love of money. If you have cash in your pocket, not only are you rare, but good for you. <laughs> it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And the love of money is a sin that has no limits. No limits. I'll give you two examples. Uh, some of you will re remember Bernie Madoff back in the early 2000s. In 2009, I believe it was, he was arrested. But before being arrested, he had a Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme, one of these pyramid schemes, right? Before being arrested, Madoff stood alongside of his friend who had donated money for an entire wing of a hospital. And, and his friend stood there cutting the ribbon with smiling Madoff next to him. What his friend did not know is that there was no money to pay for the hospital wing. Madoff had stolen the whole thing, and he stood there as if everything was fine. He was eventually arrested. He was convicted of stealing $18 billion, and he was given, sentenced to over 150 years in jail. He died just a few years ago in prison. My point is that there is no limit to the evils of the love of money. The love of money will make you do the most drastic things uh, more recently, of course, we all know of Sam Bankman-Fried. He was rated the 41st richest American at the age of 30. 41st richest American. Well, this past November, Fried was convicted on seven counts of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering worth $8 billion. And now he's waiting sentencing, and it looks like he'll receive over 100 years in prison. He's not coming out. There's no limit as to what the love of money will make you do. You are not the exception. Well, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say regarding money and the love of money and greed. And in verses 7 and 8, we see that we need to learn to be content. And verse 7 take, uh, takes us directly to uh, the essential point that we cannot argue. We all know this to be true. Verse 7 says, we can't take it with us. <laughs> You're going to leave it behind. Uh, I, I like to think that life here on earth is like being at a resort vacation where you can use everything in, uh, on the premises. You can use their bath towel. You can use their pools. You can use the sauna. You can use everything there. The water slides are great. 
However, don't take anything with you. It belongs to them. When your vacation is over, leave everything behind. That's life on Earth. Life on Earth is like an 85-year fishing expedition of catch and release. Oh, it's great to catch it, but you got to put it back. No fillets, no frying, put it back. That's what life on Earth is like. You can't take it with you. Please don't count on whatever you accumulate here on this earth to benefit you somehow in eternity. It will not. As it's been said many, many times before, there are no U-Hauls in a funeral procession. The scripture here says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Love for money has a very temporal perspective. Very temporal. Here we see that we need to find our satisfaction in what God has actually provided. Find your satisfaction, that is your contentment, in what God has provided for you. Now, we have all received in Jesus Christ everything we need in order to fulfill whatever his purpose is for our lives. If God's purpose for me is such and such, he gives to me everything I need in order to fulfill that purpose. And he does for me what he does for you and all of his children. And so in that sense, we can be content if our goal is to fulfill God's purpose in our lives. The problem, however, is that really we're not so much eager for what God wants of us, but Generally, we want what we want, not just what we need, and we incessantly want more because we have our own dreams. Say, thank you, Lord, for your hopes and dreams for me, but I have my own, and my own requires this much. And so the result is that contentment eludes us. When our hearts are fixed on money, contentment will elude you. And the result is, is that we are eagerly anticipating more, more, and more. In fact, we even think it's our right. We think it's our right to have more. And so we demand more beyond our needs and even beyond our comforts. There are even those who teach that this is God's goal for your life, that you would be wealthy and that your life would be beyond contentment and that your life should be in the lap of luxury. Let me just remind you of what Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 9, verse 58. Keep in mind that Jesus Christ said that he, not even he, has a place to rest his head. In other words, there's a cost in following Christ. It doesn't mean you won't have a pillow. It doesn't mean you won't have a home. But it does mean that there are priorities in the Christian life, and affluence is not one of them. Verse 8 in 1 Timothy 6 reads, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now listen, having possessions is not sinful. If God has been so gracious to you to allow for your labors, for your hard work to actually be effective, and you're able to buy more than what your parents bought or more than the person next to you has, well, good for you. God bless you. Good for you. Use it well. But understand 
that all that will never make you content. You're not going to find your satisfaction in those possessions. In fact, in many cases, it will take away contentment. Any discontentment that rises from a sense of, look, I, I'm owed this, or comes from a sense of being self-indulgent, the Bible condemns. The Bible calls it covetousness or greed. In fact, if you go over to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, it speaks very clearly to the matter of how we then are to live our lives. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and then there's a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, or greed. Which is what? Idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And you notice there that we are to put to death whatever is earthly, that is, whatever is sinful. There's no middle ground here. And Paul is rather dogmatic in his call for the Christians to live the Christian life. And he makes this short list of various practices that are simply not in sync with the Christian life. He says sexual immorality. That's out. That's not for us. I know it's for the culture. I do a lot of premarital counseling. and I'm always surprised at how this idea here of sexual immorality is not even on the radar anymore. But it is in the scriptures. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and covetousness. Greed. Are you surprised that greed would be listed with the others? Because greed seems to be less than all those others. But here the scriptures equate them in terms of seriousness. And the reason why greed is listed there as well is because greed is a form of idolatry. Greed is the worship of things, the worship of money. And so Colossians 3.5 says, put it to death. What? Greed as well. Or, look at verse 6, or face the wrath of God. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God will correct, he will punish, he will discipline those who are habitually practicing these sins. Uh, greed is among those punishable sins by God. And we're told why. It's because it is a form of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of another god. Greed worships another god. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 makes it very clear. Therefore, we shall learn to be content. Why? Because it is of great gain to you. Learn to be content. Now, being content doesn't mean you don't improve yourself. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that you don't try to better your situation. It means that you find satisfaction and trust in the Lord with what you have. You don't allow your heart to constantly be demanding more because you feel like you, you are owed more because there's no way you could be happy unless you have more. Here in Colossians, we're told to put it to death. In 1 Timothy 6.8, we're told to learn to be content. Now, notice, however, however, that these words do not come 
without a warning. Look at verses 9 and 10, 1 Timothy 6, 9, 10. Here we see the danger of the love of money. And before we take a look at the verses, let me just read to you from Luke chapter 12. It's what we read earlier. It says, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Every form. In other words, there's different forms of greed, right? Be aware, be on your guard, protect yourself against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. Even when you have a lot, your life is not about what you have. Uh, usually we are on, on guard against poverty. We do everything to avoid poverty, don't we? Here we're being told, be aware, be on guard against greed. A demand for wealth. Hmm. The danger of greed is very certain, very specific here. And this danger should actually move us to evaluate ourselves and see if there is greed lurking in the recesses of our own hearts. The word of God here is as certain as the sun is in the sky. It's out there today. It's shining. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Interesting, isn't it? Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Again, we usually think of it the other way around. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Usually when we think of wealth, we don't think of restraint. When, when somebody's lazy, we say, you know, get up and go to work. Have some self-control. Have some restraint. Get out there. Make some money. Do something with yourself. Here the scriptures are saying the opposite. It's not advocating for poverty, but it's advocating for a lifestyle that shows restraint and doesn't give yourself fully to the greed of money. That that does not become your goal in life. And listen, anyone who actually bucks the system of greed is going against the culture of the United States of America, actually Western civilization. It's not just here in America. It's in Latin America. It's in Europe. It's in Africa. It's in the most impoverished places as well. It doesn't mean that you have money. It means that you want more money and you can't be satisfied until you have more money. And people just don't show any restraint. It's all about money, 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 money. More, 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 and more. Again, if you have money, good. Use it well. If you can, enjoy it. But don't make that your quest. And do not expect it to satisfy you. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. <laughs> That's what money does. Sprouts wings and flies away. I think it was two years ago. Somebody broke into the Central Park Zoo and cut away a hole in a fence where the eagle, Flacco, lived and left a big gaping hole there. And of course, the eagle saw the hole. What did it do? It took off. 
And now every once in a while you see an eagle flying across Manhattan. They're still tracking it. They're still trying to get it back. Flacco's not coming back. <laughs> and that's what money is like. This is the way you used to be. We see in Colossians 3.7. This is the life you once lived. But now going back to 1 Timothy. Look at verse 9. 6.9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Does that surprise you? The desire to be rich can lead you to fall into various temptations, into snares, which will cause you senseless and harmful, destructive ruin. Those who resolve to be rich, who make this their long longing, their personal goal, expose themselves to temptation. You realize, I, I imagine, that illicit desires make illicit objects very attractive. And illicit desires also make illicit methods very attractive. Beware. Beware because it does snare you. In other words, it will lead you to do many senseless or foolish and harmful things. In fact, here Paul says it will plunge you into ruin, into doom. A passion for more, greed, destruction is what it says here. And the word there for destruction actually conveys the idea that you're being cut off from what you should really have been. You're being kept from being what you should have been. See, in your quest for money to become what you want to be, to be the best that you can be, to have everything you actually ever wanted, will actually lead you to be less than what you ought to be. Destruction. Uh, some years ago, a relative stopped in front of our house in his pickup truck, and in the back he had a bobcat. Beautiful animal. Beautiful bobcat. And, and the fur... Was as soft. I was surprised to see how soft the fur was. Beautiful, as I petted that bobcat. And the reason I was able to pet that bobcat was because it was dead. And it was dead because there was a trap that this relative set for a different animal. But the bobcat couldn't resist the temptation, and it killed him. That's money. Just for you animal lovers, he was hired by the state to set out the trap. <laughs> the love of money causes people to wander away from the faith. People rarely see their need uh, for God when their pockets are full. <laughs> Why turn to Christ? You know, early on when I was a young man, I, I was a minister in the Patterson area. And if you know New Jersey... Patterson is not a nice neighborhood. Nobody says, I want to go live in Patterson. Okay? High crime, no place to park. By the way, a three-bedroom three, uh, apartment there is about $3,000 a month, just in case you think your mortgage is big. Okay? 
It was an awful place to minister as well. Tough, difficult, difficult place. But people there, because they were so impoverished, were very open to the gospel. And week after week, we would have 100, 110 kids would come to hear the gospel. And from there, that church, I moved to a church in Bergen County, New Jersey. And if you know Bergen County, you know it's very affluent. And you don't know how difficult it was to get even five kids to come to hear the gospel. And what's the difference? In Patterson, their pockets were empty. In Bergen County, their pockets were full. We don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus. So who's better off? Eternally. Who's better off? The truth is, my friends, is that the more we have, the less we see our need for Christ. If you are poor, praise God. <laughs> I'm not saying stay poor, but take advantage of your poverty because you see your need to rely on Christ, whereas the rich man seldom does. The rich woman will most likely ignore Christ. I'm not advocating for poverty. I'm advocating for a concept, a mentality that does not make money your goal. Whatever you have, use it well, but don't make that your goal in life. It becomes an idol. What I find interesting here in verse 10, it says that they pierce themselves with many pangs. And that word there, pierce, means to put a spigot, not a spigot, a, a, a spit through you, like, like a pig uh, being roasted. That's what you're doing to yourself when you make money your quest. You're putting a spit through you and you're just being roasted over the fire. Well, let me list for you in a time that we have here the problems with loving money. We've said already that loving money is, um, is never satisfying. Money is rewarding, but it doesn't satisfy. We also saw that it comes with great difficulty, yes, but it goes so quickly. And thirdly, and let me build on this, money becomes an idol. The love of money is idolatry. How is the love of money idolatry? It's idolatry because when you begin to love money, you transfer your trust from God to money or to your accounts or to your IRA or to whatever assets you have. And then you transfer your heart to another God. And therefore, it's idolatry. Greed becomes a form of worship because through greed, your love and your trust is in another God instead of the true God, the God of the Scriptures, capital G-O-D. And then the love of money is going to determine your actions. It will. It will. You are not the exception. If you have money, good, use it well, but don't love it. The love of money will determine your actions. We become obedient then to the God of money. It becomes our master. And as you well know, no one can be loyal to two masters. One will be obeyed, whereas the other one will be ignored or simply disobeyed. Greed obeys worldly treasures over the true God. And idolatry violates the first two commandments. It recorded for us in Exodus 20. 
You shall not have other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself other gods. Money is probably the most common god in the home. Well, we don't keep it on the mantle. We store it under lock and key, but it becomes our god. The love of money displaces God in your life, in your home. And it may not be very obvious at first, but listen, if you are stirred, if your emotions are hyped more by your desire and goals and money than for God, you have a problem. You are beginning to love money over God. You have two masters. One will win, and it will not be the God of the Bible. There is a singular term to define love of money, and, and that word is avarice. Love of money is avarice, and it breeds greed. And greed grows when contentment has a short shelf life. It just keeps growing and growing. It's evident when your heart longs for things more so than you long for Christ in you. Uh, greed or avarice is evident in you when you buy into the norms of this culture or when you focus on this life instead of eternity. You begin to experience then the entangling, creeping roots of avarice. Look at what verse 10 reads. It says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not money in and of itself, but rather the love of money, avarice, is the root of all kinds of evil. How do you know that you love money? How do you know whether or not you love money? Again, you can be poor and still love money. Well, you know you are suffering from a serious case of avarice when the word sacrifice becomes foreign to you. And you know you love money when giving to God pains you. And you know you love money when you have neglected what is greater of greater importance for the sake of money. Now, some people will say, well, these all seem rather innocuous. But again, these are the roots of all kinds of evils. This is where it all begins. And it just grows, grows, grows. Evil brings about personal suffering. The love of money will bring about personal suffering to you while it's promising to bring you blessing and to bring, bring you joy, to bring you a sense of satisfaction. The love of money actually brings you evil. And all our discussion here this morning is empty unless we consider some ways in which we can overcome the love of money. Let me give to you six ways to overcome the love of money. It took some time to uh, see what others were saying, and I compiled a short list of just six ways in which we can escape the love of money. And the first one is rather obvious, but probably the one least practiced. How can we overcome the love of money? Well, here's number one. Pray about your love for money. Pray about it. Be honest with the Lord. Be honest with yourself. Ask God to change your heart. Confess your idolatry. Repent of your sin of avarice. Here's number two. How can you overcome the love of money? Realize that the love of money reduces your love and trust of God. The love of money is reducing 
your ability to trust and your love for God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 reads this way. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can keep trying, but you will not succeed. Why do people worship idols? Because they don't think that the true God will accomplish what they believe is necessary. They say, the God of the Bible won't do it, so I need to find other gods, even if it is money. They don't trust the true God to provide what they long for, and so they look for another God, money. And they fear that God is really not as good or able as he says he is, and therefore they go and look for another God, money. The love of money, their love of money, leads them to believe that they can accomplish what God will not. And ironically, God does not need our money. He does not need your money. Not yours, not mine. After all, our money is actually his money. Uh, God is very wealthy. He owns all of creation. Uh, Psalm 50 tells us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Acts 17 tells us that he is not served by human hands. And love for God means that we will place him over all these other loves. Love God more because he gives us the breath of life. Love God more because he gives to us everything we possess. Love God more and you will see how big your God is. Again, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning of verse 9, it reads this way. I'll have to look it up for you because I didn't write it down. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Romans chapter, um, rather, Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I've never done that, have you? I don't think so. Look at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The God who loves us enough to give us his Son on a cross Surely he loves you enough to provide you with what is necessary to care for you, to provide for you for each day. Uh, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, the best thing about the future is that it comes only one day at a time. And God provides for you one day at a time. We do expect poor people to come to Christ, don't we? Oh, you need Jesus. Look at you. You have no place to live. You're filthy. You have no money in the account. You're borrowing and begging. But really, what we see here is rich people need to come to Christ. And it's harder for the rich than for the poor to come to Christ. We should pray for the rich. 
that they would come to Christ. Pray that they would not reduce God in their lives because of their wealth. They look for wealth to provide them security and comfort and, and for the future and, and even daily satisfaction, my friends. It will not come from your money. Uh, here is a third way to escape the love of money. This was good advice given to me some years ago. Don't assume that your love for money is neutral. Do not assume neutrality. Many people believe that uh, this desire for more or bigger or better or newer is spiritually neutral. No, it's not. Look at verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. And so let me encourage you to evaluate your goals. Evaluate whatever your heart desires are. What are your plans? Examine and see whether or not your desires are founded or grounded in the spiritual truths of God or in greed and materialism. It is essential that you learn to trust in God. God promised, yes, a land of milk and honey to the people of Israel. All the essentials and all the pleasures. But don't you think that the milk and honey is going to make or break your life? Do not make the milk and honey your God. You know that it's greed when your debt keeps escalating. You know that you're suffering from greed when satisfaction is never gained. You know that you are suffering from avarice when bigger and better becomes your norm. You know that you love money when your plans and things take away from what you are willing to give to God. Matthew 6.32 says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here's number four. How to escape the love of money? Find your satisfaction in what God has provided. We have all received all that we need in order for us to become, to do what God intends for us to do, to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. Again, the problem is not what we have. The problem is that we want more. Verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here's number 5 of 6. And this is a less obvious one, but I think very important. If you want to overcome the love of money, here's this. Here's this idea. Practice hospitality. Does that surprise you? Practice hospitality. Hospitality is that forgotten Christian practice. Hospitality reflects the generosity of God towards us. It also imparts God's blessings onto others. Look at what God gave to me and I share with you. It is an extension of God's love to others through you. When you extend your resources to others, when you extend your time and your friendship to others, hospitality. Even as Christ did with us, now we share our lives with others even meet the needs of others and establish fellowship with others. You go to Romans chapter 12 and there's a list of things we should do for one another. Among them, this, practice hospitality. And one last way to escape the danger of the love of money. Number six, give liberally. Uh, Jonathan Lehman writes that Christians are the true liberals. 
Let every check you write to the cause of Christ be a declaration of your independence from the love of money. We all need money in order to eat and drink and dress ourselves, but God also gives to us so that we can give to others. Just as Christ became poor for our sake, we ought to give to others. And I think it's prudent to say for a rainy day, you should. You should work hard at that. But it's even wiser to give in the name of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God. Both are essential. Again, from Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where neither thieves and where thieves do not break in or steal. But get this, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where you can find your heart. Have you lost your heart? Well, go look at your treasure. You'll find it there. Listen, my friends, heaven will have no heartless people. And where your heart is, that is where you will spend eternity. Learn. To love the Lord and trust in him with what he gives. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, we are so grateful that you are our God and that you give to us principles to live by that are against the ways of this world. The world has so influenced us but has proven again and again to falter and fail. The principles of this world may seem so, so favorable, so natural, so good, until they're put into practice and they fail us. They collapse life after life after life, destroy homes, families, institutions, and even nations. But you, Lord, in your grace, have opened our eyes to new ways of thinking, biblical ways of thinking, godly ways of thinking. We pray, Lord, that we would join together godliness and contentment and that we would find our satisfaction in what you give to us and what you provide.